0: You're listening to On Human Rights, where we interview experts from around the world on the most important issues and trends in the fields of human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Today, we're speaking to Morten Kedrum. He's the director of the Raoul Wallenberg Institute. Morten, thanks for joining us today. Certainly. You often speak about the increasing authoritarian trends uh, that are happening globally. What should we be thinking about those, and and how should we be concerned? The sort of the common language that
1: has developed uh, the last uh, ten, fifteen years is that we talk about the shrinking space, that the shrinking space for civil society, for journalists, for the freedom of expression, for let's say some of these basic democratic. Uh, players to be able to interact in an open way to have different opinions meet and uh, uh, be confronted that that space is more limited uh, today than uh, what it was what we have seen across all the continents uh, is an is new legislation limiting uh, the possibilities for for example civil society to receive uh, external funding from uh, funding from abroad uh, we have seen, uh, uh, killings of, of journalists or journalists who are imprisoned or threatened to an extent where they either have to leave or they have to leave leave the country or leave their uh, their work and not being able to perform uh, as uh, they would like to. Uh, so we see all these uh, situations, as well as we increasingly have uh, seen attacks on. Basic institutions in uh, in a democratic rule of law based society. We have we hear increasingly very negative, hostile talk about the role of our courts. The courts being a very important uh, part of the division of powers, the three different powers that should keep each other in, in, in uh, balance, the checks and balances. Uh, and if we suddenly alienate, if we push out one of these uh, powers then we definitely lose something important in our democratic uh, setup so all these tendencies add up to something where we would uh, should be concerned about where our democratic uh, uh, societies are moving
0: you you talk about the great deal of criticism and even financial undermining of these key institutions like the european court of human rights even the U.N. Human Rights Council. Um, how do you think that trend can be reversed? First of all, I think <clears throat> all
1: those who uh, are actors uh, in this, and here I in particular I think about politicians and and other opinion makers with easy access to microphones, uh, to the media, to the social media, really have to think about what they do. I mean, when they, uh, let's say, alienate uh, judges, talk about judges not being democratically elected. So what is uh, what is their legitimacy in, uh, for example, uh, uh, declaring a piece of legislation unconstitutional or in, in non-conformity with international human rights? I mean, that is why they're there. They should not be democratically elected. They are exactly to there to balance out the people who are democratically elected. That's exactly the lesson learned from the Second World War. Let's not forget that uh, Hitler was democratically elected and then eroded uh, all the other democratic institutions. And in the end, he had the absolute power. And that's what we, again, we want to to avoid. And we need to have these powers uh, in balance. So the first step is to uh, let's, let's, I would almost uh, maybe sound a bit old fashioned, but let's uh, uh, show respect. Uh, for the institutions let's create an under recreate an understanding of why the institutions uh, are there then of course we need to ensure proper funding uh, proper recruitment ensure that they can actually function in a, uh, in a way so they can perform their particular role so there are a number of steps uh, to be taken if we lift it up to the international system, <coughs> The lesson I learned again from uh, uh, Second World War was that uh, the national level institutions can be eroded, and in order to, to try to be a bulwark against that, we need uh, regional and uh, international bodies that can uh, cry out in time, be early warning mechanisms that, that can be treaty bodies in the UN. Of course, in Europe, we have the European uh, Court of Human Rights, uh, which is one of the strongest, if not the strongest, uh, of this kind of uh, institutions, which are there to protect the individual and also send signal to to the governments, to states, that now you have transgressed, either in your legislation or in your particular practices, uh, the boundaries uh, that should govern the uh, respect for the individual, the dignity uh, of the individual uh, person. And here again, we need to ensure that these institutions have sufficient uh, funding, uh, sufficient mandates, uh, to be able to perform uh, that role.
0: At the same time, there's uh, real fear and angst um, that people feel, and it's also being pushed by the media and, uh, you know, it dominates the political discourse when it comes to issues like terrorism and crime, mass mass, uh, migration, what's called the job-killing effects of globalization um how can we reframe these issues so that they uh that we move away from the fear and we talk about the possibilities
1: i think it's it's very important to uh, really sort of take, differentiate and look at each of the different cases that create fear let's not forget that fear is very real fear fear is a real thing and fear kills feels fear <laughs> undermine the uh, the uh, life quality, uh, and, and in the end, I would say, it uh, brings down people's uh, life expectancy uh, as well. So that is real. But what people fear, what leads to uh, the fear, may not always uh, be real. Let's take the most, maybe the most extreme currently, is that there's constantly a lot of talk about crime, regular crime, burglary, uh, violence, say, in the street. But at the same time, what is not told very often is that we have never, in the Western world, in the Nordic countries, we have never had such a low level of crime. So, cli- crime is declining. So, maybe we could speak that instead of creating maybe an angst which is not necessary. Of course, angst, if it's real, if there's really something that we should fear, we need to have be prepared and, and have that angst, that sort of a think, a biological element, but we should not create angst where it's not uh, a reason for it. You could say the horrendous, the heinous crimes that we have seen of terrorism, uh, of course, should be addressed by our governments, legislation should be in place, our intelligence services uh, should work. However, we should also, again, getting the proportions, the risk for the the ordinary uh, people to end up uh, in a... A terror attack is is absolutely minimal. Of course, one should look out, but as again, not be absorbed by the fear. Then we have other sorts of fear, which are uh, the issues of what shall I do tomorrow? The new technology, the climate change, and this is maybe where we uh, are not talking sufficiently about that sort of fear. In my view, that would is much more relevant. For very many people to address Uh, so you could in a way say that we spend a lot of time talking about refugees and muslims and 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 crime whereas the real issues in my view where where there's really a, a reason to fear the future then it's the new technology climate change and those aspects but they're also so complex and and difficult to address so it's easier to switch the focus and and so, say that fear that is addressed by new technology, for example, or climate change, then we can personalize the fear in the other in the Muslim, in the foreigner uh, in the refugees coming, although the refugees or the Muslims have very little to do with for example, the show less the driverless car, the driverless car that we a lot of people talk about with great enthusiasm mm. uh let's uh, and embrace it uh, wholeheartedly and let me say immediately so do i i mean i l- like new technology but we need to address what it does to for example this 35 year old truck driver who has sort of say invested in, edu- in an education in becoming truck driver when he listens in the radio to this enthusiastic talk about the the uh, chauffeurless uh, car of course he will reflect about what am I going to do five years from now mm-hmm. if my truck is basically driving around on its uh, own. Or the cashier in, uh, in a supermarket uh, in Ikea or, or wherever uh, who more, uh, most probably will be substituted with an app uh, or some new electronic device in a few years from now. And that's what we are not very good at addressing or we're only in the beginning of addressing it. Or you could say the, the wine producer in, uh, or the person working on a wine yard in France and Italy and Spain. Thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of, of farmers uh, across Europe that can now on a daily basis watch their wine stocks stressed by the climate change. What is the future uh, for, the, for, for this sort of work uh, in the future? We need to address it. We need to have a much stronger, more coherent discussion, more engaging uh, discussion uh, about that in order to accommodate and address the very relevant fears that uh, people have.
0: Mm. You've also said that the human rights world, uh, together with others, are absent from some of the more profound and difficult topics and issues that drive this fear. Uh, And one specifically that you've mentioned is inequality. Um, how, how where people live and how much they make affects the rights that they can enjoy. How can the human rights world be more active in dealing with inequality uh, and this major problem where we're seeing people being left behind?
1: I think if we look at uh, the uh, Brexit election, the Trump election, uh, and also some of the, uh, say, the uh, electorate uh, uh, supporting Marine Le Pen in, in France, uh, let's say, th- I know it's more complex than what I now portray, but let's say that it is a certain segment in our population, those who are in risk of the new of uh, becoming uh, unemployed or or are already unemployed uh, because of the uh, new technology, uh, the new technologies, the climate change, or whatever. Okay. We need to address uh, that more. Let me give you one example. Uh, I came across uh, this one street in. Uh, in Aalborg, in, uh, in uh, Denmark, there's a, I also found a metro line in uh, Stockholm, where if you take the people living in the one end of the metro line in Stockholm, they live in average 12 years shorter. Their life expectancy is 12 years shorter than those living in the other end of the metro line. And those people, who are they? They are Swedes, they are Danes. They are men primarily, they are uh, low educated, uh, many of them unemployed, uh, have weak uh, social networks, etc. 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 How much did we address that in the human rights world? Their concerns? I would almost say if they had been Roma, uh, if they had been uh, ethnic minorities, then they would have fit to our traditional agenda in the human rights world i would say we have had a blind eye here we we should have addressed it as well as politicians and others should have addressed uh, these concerns more profoundly or their concerns more uh, profoundly than what they have done this is what i'm calling into the human rights environment now to say listen we need to address it in for example the charter of Fundament- the eu charter of fundamental rights article 21 you have the grounds of discrimination Uh, ethnicity, religion, sexual orientation, etc., etc. And I would postulate that we have probably in the human rights world covered all of the grounds mentioned in Article 21, except (coughs) except from one, namely the one uh, right or prohibition, and that is the prohibition against discrimination based on social origin. So I've now taken an example from Denmark, from Sweden, but basically this inequality that we have seen uh, growing dramatically at the very local level up to the global level is something that we need to address uh, more profoundly in the uh, human rights world. And that also means that we need to go back and see how you could go all the way back to uh, Roosevelt in his uh, uh, For Freedom speech in, in 1941, where he addressed the American Congress in the middle of the early stages of First World War, where he laid out the moral grounds for the new world order when at some stage the the war would be over. And he said, there are four freedoms. And he said, freedom uh, freedom of uh, expression, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. So he already there expressed exactly the fear element as well, as well as the freedom from want. And what you saw then later in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948, which is partly based on, say, the Four Freedom speech gave inspiration to the um, Universal Declaration. And there again you see the integration of civil political rights. As well as economic social rights, it's again repeated in the Vienna Declaration from one thousand nine hundred and ninety three, right after the second, uh, sorry, uh, right after the Cold War. Uh, but we still haven't really developed it, uh, the economic social rights and the integration, the interrelatedness between the two sets of rights. I think it's time now, uh, and there are a number of, let's say, possibilities uh, that we should uh, explore.
0: Our institute has really begun to ramp up its work with cities at the local level, and we're really at the forefront of this human rights cities work. Um, a lot of what you've been talking about has been at the national and international level, but can you talk to us about why cities are becoming a priority here, but also you know everywhere around the world?
1: You can say working with the cities is, in a way, a logical next step uh, in the sense that uh, uh in the post-Second World War uh, period until, let's say, 1989, 1990, end of the Cold War, that was a period of where we developed the, the big uh, the international conventions, the international mechanisms, etc. We got the framework, the legal framework, the institutions uh, in place. At the same time, human rights was very much also part of the Cold War rhetoric. It was sort of things we addressed on the other side of the Iron Curtain in uh, apartheid South Africa and uh, the dictatorships in Latin America. Then uh, uh, in eighty-nine, ninety, things changed dramatically with the democratization processes. And you could say, at that stage, there was a domestication of human rights. Human rights were taken back home. And increasingly, people asked, but how do we implement human rights in national legislation? How do our courts uh, address it? You could certainly see a lot of political uh, discussions on domestic issues, be it on persons with mental health problems, on uh, foreigners or children. Suddenly, they were uh, also addressed in human rights terms. So at that national level, uh, from the early 90s, it started uh, capturing uh, the uh, the minds of, of people. Our courts started using the conventions, and many more decisions referring to international standards in in most uh, courts uh, in the last uh, 25 years. You saw national human rights institutions emerging now today in hundred. Countries back in uh, 1990, there were five such institutions in the world. Now there are more than 100. So, at enormous domestication. The next step is then, of course, after you have so say, taken it from the foreign policy to the national level, then you take it the next step to where people live. People live locally, they're governed, a lot of their life is governed locally by the munici- uh, municipals, by the uh, regional. Uh, councils, a lot of decisions which are directly affecting uh, the citizens is are, are made here in relation to health, education, social allowances, uh, policing, etc., uh, etc. Et so, so if you, in a way, you can say, as Eleanor Roosevelt, another Roosevelt, uh, said, I mean, if human rights, to paraphrase her, if human rights have no meaning there, they have no meaning anywhere. I mean, if, it, if if human rights is only something we talk about in Geneva and New York and Paris, then, uh, and, and, and it doesn't play out in real life in uh, Jönköping or Lund or York or Utrecht, then it's, then it's not really interesting. So that's why it's extremely uh, exciting what happens now with the work of the uh, cities, that more and more cities are coming in uh, saying they want to be human rights cities, and uh, are taking the next steps, namely asking themselves, "What does that mean uh, how does that does that change anything, or is it just sort of another nice label one day we're a green city, then we're a rainbow city, and now we're a human rights city, tomorrow we're a sustainable city. but this is where we say no this is this has an impact uh, and uh, this uh, influences the policies and the way you work as a city.
0: Mm. Another place that human rights have entered in in recent years is the private sector, Um, and many companies have embraced corporate social responsibility and human rights, but there's still a lot more that can be done. Uh, Of course, the environment, pollution, and climate change are all huge areas here. Uh, Where do you think things are heading
1: in a way I ask myself, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I think when we talk about private sector, I think it's uh, we have discussed it since, let's say, the mid-1990s, uh, a number of toolboxes, instruments, uh, uh, soft law, frameworks uh, have been established. Uh, I think we have come to a stage now uh, where we really have to see what what does that mean in reality for the, this or that Uh, uh, business uh, this industry this uh, particular workplace so um, I mean we now need to see much more action uh, from the companies some have progressed well done a lot of very important exciting because it's sort of groundbreaking work Uh, but we need to see many more uh, uh, businesses uh, embracing this and really Take it into the uh, into the institutions. It's it's a, a precondition for human rights, really, to take uh, root.
0: Mm. One more question for you: uh, What are you hopeful about?
1: I'm hopeful for uh, because I see uh, that we have there been such a mainstreaming of human rights the last twenty five years. So currently we have. Uh, some fairly hostile uh, political uh, uh, flows, uh, statements, approaches. Uh, But at the same, we have a lot of millions of officials, civil servants, prison guards, uh, social workers, people, uh, nurses at hospitals who are embracing uh, human rights in their day-to-day work. They are... Respect. They are meeting the uh, patients, uh, whether it's ethnic minorities, sexual minorities, and others, uh, with that respect that uh, a human being should have. So um, on the one hand, I fear the, some of the trends, but on the other uh, hand, I see this fabulous commitment and mainstreaming. So I'm hopeful that uh, that is the, uh, in the end what will uh, prevail.
0: Morten Kerum is the director of the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure. On Human Rights is brought to you by the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more interviewing of experts from around the world on the latest issues affecting human rights and humanitarian law.